0: Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. But now, you've got your notebooks ready. I want to give you first the scriptures that are involved and in their proper order. Second Samuel Chapter eleven Psalms thirty two and Psalms thirty eight Samuel Chapter twelve and finally Number five, Psalm 51. Now, let's turn to that portion, and I will read this psalm, but not the rest of those four passages. But as I said, those passages are in the proper order, sequentially, of the matters that are being dealt with in this passage Uh, and in the message this morning. So we're beginning with Psalm 51. Some of you perhaps will be immediately aware of the content of this. Others of you might be a little slow on the uptake and uh, perhaps not familiar Psalm 51, look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion, blot out my transgression. Now not all Bibles have this, but perhaps the Bible you're reading from, under Psalm 51, in the heading, gives a statement concerning what this is about. Under the chapter number, I have in mind, you may have something slightly different a contrite sinner's prayer for pardon. You have anything like that under Psalm 51? And then I read, and this is not part of the inspired word, this is the explanation that is added for the choir director. A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, let's fix that in our minds. This is a contrite sinner's prayer. Now, I wonder how many of you could be truly described as a contrite sinner. Now, there's no question everybody in the room is a sinner. If you think you're not, you're stupid. But not everybody who knows they're sinners knows that they're sinful enough to be ashamed, to be grieved, You certainly can't be contrite if you're not ashamed. If you're not grieved, those things go together. Now, we get a fair amount of talk about heaven. And some who talk about heaven don't really know what they're talking about. And will never know because they'll never be there. But some do know And some know quite well what they're looking forward to. And for those who are really deeply interested, there's a lot that could be said about heaven, but one thing of extraordinary importance. In heaven, there will be no sin. Now, a lot of people who think they're going there won't like that part of it because they love to sin. And the notion of being deprived of the opportunity is anything but pleasant. But they really don't need to worry because they won't go there even though they think they will because they're not contrite. They don't see the problem of sin. Even if they at some point or other or even frequently admit they're sinners, being a sinner is no great problem to them. So really it's a very important question to ask ourselves. This is obvious not the kind of question you ask in public of others, but it's certainly a question to ask yourself, are you disgusted? With yourself, ashamed of yourself, because you're a sinner. Do you grieve over sin? Do you have thoughts like this? Oh, I wished I would never ever sin again. I can't imagine anything more wonderful than to be a situation where. I would never, ever sin again. Heaven has lots of attractive features. But to me, the two most important features of heaven are the presence of Christ and the absence of sin. Now, when the heading says, the prayer Of a contrite sinner. That's a bit of the picture of what the contrite sinner is. The one who's ashamed, disgusted, wishing never ever to personally sin again and longing to be in a place where sin does not exist. And some of you perhaps have thought of this. Just as Heaven is a place where sin never appears and where Christ never departs. Hell is a place where sin reigns supreme and where Christ never goes. Did it ever occur to you that a person could be in hell for a thousand years? A hundred thousand years? A hundred million years? And in all that time, he could not think sooner or later Christ will come. Because just as heaven is marked by the unbroken presence of Christ, hell is marked by his unbroken absence. If that doesn't mean anything to you, if you had the grace, you would be ashamed. Now it doesn't mean anything to vast numbers of people, and they don't have the grace to be ashamed. But I wasn't asking about the vast number, but about you. So here's David with a prayer of the contrite sinner. Sinner. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, I gave you up front the five great chapters that deal with this problem David had of sin. And as I said, we're not going to go back and read them. But I do encourage you to do so personally. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we are informed that King David stayed home while the army went forth to war. And that was uncommon, because the king very regularly accompanied them. But he not only stayed home, but he stayed in bed all day. And then late in the day, he got up, and he went up on the roof where he knew he could look across and see a very beautiful woman taking a bath. And he sent an order for this woman to come to the palace bedroom and committed adultery with her. Then later, when he discovered that she was pregnant as a result of that sin, he ordered her husband to be brought back from the battle on the front line and pretended that the purpose in bringing him back was so that he could have a report as to how the battle was going. But that was a lie. He wasn't interested in how the battle was going. He was trying to figure out how he could cover up his sin and get away with it. And then after meeting with the husband, ordered him to go home and sleep with his wife. But he didn't. He slept at the palace gate. And then the king thought, i got to have another plan. First one didn't work. So he brought the man back in to the palace and got him drunk. Then told him to go home. But once again, the man did not home. So the third day, the king had figured out what he would do. He wrote a letter to the captain on the front line. Said, put this man in the most vulnerable position on the battlefront where he's sure to be killed. And then required the man to carry that letter in his own pocket. Now, talk about nastiness, rotten sin, willful perversion. There's a picture of it. That's very real. Now, is that worse than anything you ever did? Well, if you're careless, you may say yes. But if you're thoughtful, you'll know that you're every bit as bad as King David, and that your sin is at least as gross as his. Maybe different, but different doesn't matter. Now, look at what follows here. I know, this is verse three I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Now, look, what's the sense of coming to church? hearing the Bible read, having a Bible open in front of yourself, and paying no attention. I know my transgressions, says King David. Do you? Do you know your transgressions? Or do you wear blinders, rose-colored glasses that make you think better of yourself than you ought? If you say you're not as bad as David, you're worse than David because David was willing to admit how rotten he was. And the person who refuses to admit their sin is vastly worse than the person who admits their sin. And uh, we need also, to be honest, With ourselves and to ask, can I join King David in saying, my sin is ever before me? Or have you found some clever way of squelching your conscience, pretending? that you are a better person than you really are. So again, if you refuse to admit your sin, you're worse than David. And if you somehow have managed to keep your sin from disturbing you, you worse than David. <laughs> you can't, as I've said already, possibly be contrite when you won't even admit you got the problem. But then notice what comes in verse four against thee, thee only. I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. Now, let's remind ourselves again who wrote these words and who he was and what he had done. It's the king, the most famous of all the kings, of the Bible, King David, who has written these words, and what he had done was of colossal nature, adultery and murder. But actually, a hidden sin of the heart is worse. But here's a sinner who had committed a flagrant public sin. And he says to God, against thee, thee only, I have sinned. Now, you're thinking, people, how did he dare to say such a thing? Against thee, thee only, I have sinned. Do you think his sin was only against God? Do you think your sin is against God? When you look at the story, and I gave you the references, and ever so brief a portion of Second Samuel chapter 11, And if you were to put in Psalm 32 and 38 and read them carefully, you would see what the impact of sin had on David's life, how he felt as if his bones were broken, as if his mouth uh, was dry, his lips uh, uh, caked, and... uh, well, he felt absolutely rotten. But nonetheless to say against thee, the only, speaking to God seems somewhat absurd. He had, after all, sinned against the woman Bathsheba by sending an order to her to appear in his bedchamber. He had certainly sinned against her husband by ordering his death and then requiring him to carry himself the death notice. He had sinned against the captain of the Lord's host by involving him in the crime sinned against his own family he had sinned against the nation over whom he was king how did he dare to say against thee The only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight I wonder if you understand what David understood that the great evil of all sin consists in this fact it is against God. Do you feel that? Sir, do you know that your sin? is against God. Do each of us know that the great evil of all sin is that it is against God? Now, when you begin to understand that, then you know what happened to King David it's not merely that you read about it and understand what you read, but you know what happened to him. You know that in chapter 12 of Second Samuel, he had covered up this sin. He had pretended nothing had happened that was out of the way. And then a prophet comes, points his bony finger into the king's face and says, He is the one. The prophet, you remember, told that little account of a man with plenty of things and sheep had a guest, and he went and had one of his servants steal a lamb from the poor man, a lamb that the poor man carried around in his own arms. His children's pet and stole that lamb from the poor man, and then had it prepared and fed the guest. And when David heard the story, he rose up in rage. That man will pay. And then the prophet said, you're the man. And he felt it. He knew it was true contrition came upon him. But has it come upon you? Do you see that your sin is against God? Have you felt it? Do you lament over it? Do you wish it were Not true. And then David, of course, was concerned and because the child that was born. Now that's helpful just to face the fact the child was born. That means he had covered up the sin for a long time. At least nine months. But when the child was ill, David wept, fasted, prayed that somehow the child would be spared. It wasn't a child's sin, but David's sin. And again, Psalm 38 paints the picture of the man who covers up his sin. Have you ever been disturbed about the condition of the nation in which we live? Have you listened to the speeches? of the candidates for president and said to yourself, there's just a bunch of trash. It would be wonderful if they all disappeared. Not a single person, really, worth voting for. Oh, well, maybe one not quite so bad as another, but all of them rotten. And the nation itself, heading downhill very fast. Maybe you've heard the statistic. Ten years ago, 38% of the population of America attended church. Last year, 7%, 17%, dropped more than half over the last 10 years. And 10 years from now, Can you imagine how many? Did you ever think about this church with the windows broken out, the roof caved in? The parking lot, obviously empty. Oh, you say, not here. Well, why not here? It's happening in thousands of other places. When a nation covers its sin, the same thing happens to the nation that happens to the individual. But let's focus not upon the grievous aspects, but upon the incredible value of understanding that the great evil of all sin consists in the fact that it is against God. Let's give some careful thought to those words. In what way is it true that all sin is against God? In what way is it true that your personal sin is against God? Well, let me give you a series of thought-provoking statements. All sin is against God's sovereign rights. Let that register in your mind. All sin is against God's sovereign rights. Now, most of us are wise enough to know that we didn't make ourselves. That we are indeed the product of a creator, God. And while we may think, well, he didn't make me personally, though I acknowledge he made Adam and Eve, well, now don't be silly. God gave you life. Your parents' union produced a body, but that body could have been born dead. Instead, the breath of life was breathed into each person here, small, large, young, old, makes no difference. And the God, who is our creator, is sovereign. Everything is his. The mountains, the plains, the rivers, the deserts, the cattle, the raving lunatic, everything the grass, the bush, the tree. Now, we may not acknowledge this very carefully, but the men who established this nation acknowledged it. They built a constitution and a bill of rights, and they said, we have been endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. The right to life, to liberty, to the pursuit of happiness. Now, having picked on this young fellow before, suppose now I were to step up to him again and say, I've been looking at you. I don't get the impression you're wealthy. Now, I've decided to endow you with $10 million. Did you hear what I said? (laughs) Now, what want this young fellow to do? What do you think he should do? you should find out if I have 10 million. <laughs> How can I give you what I don't have? How could God give us rights if he doesn't have any? If we have been endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. That means he has rights. He didn't give them to us. He still has his rights, but he's granted some of our own. And now the question is, are you giving God his rights? Now let me be blunt. I know there are young people here But sooner or later, they'll have to face these matters. Might as well face them in church, as behind the barn. Who created sex? Your nephew? Your grandfather? Or God? And as the creator, he has the right to say what is right and what is wrong. Every sexual sin is a violation of God's rights. Everyone, without any exception. Why, we could spend the entire day, and I doubt that you prepared to come and stay all day. So we won't, but we could take all day just describing God's rights. But you see, when David said against thee, the only have I sinned, he knew he had violated God's rights. He had committed adultery with a person he had no right to deal with. He had committed Murder had taken away the life of another man. He had no right to take that life. He lied. He covered it up. He lived in shame. Every sin is a violation of God's rights. Now, I wonder if you've been honest enough with yourself to acknowledge that and to be grieved over the awareness of sin. Now, the happy thing about the account of King David is that he was granted forgiveness, not only by his family and the nation, but by the God he sinned against. What a tragedy if someone here who has sinned against the God who made them has never been granted forgiveness by God. And of course, God has a wonderful way of granting forgiveness when we come to really understand that His only begotten Son. Died in our place, took our sins upon his own shoulders, paid for them in full, and then we receive him and live the rest of our lives with Christ as our. Savior and our Lord, then our sins are paid for. Otherwise, you pay for them yourself, and you'll spend millions and millions of years paying for the pleasures of a few short years. You see, all sin is not only against God's sovereign rights, but number two, sin is also uh, against God's purpose in creation. God did not create this world in order to make the rotten mess it's now in. And we all know the story of Adam and Eve, and how God gave them a very simple, a very straightforward rule, eat everything in the garden that appeals to you, but don't touch this one tree. And we surely know that all sin is in refusing to listen to God and obey him. Now, that's easy for some people to do because they don't even know who God is. They wouldn't know how to discover what God wants and doesn't want. But, as we say concerning police affairs, Ignorance is no excuse of the law. You're held responsible for the law, whether you know what the law is or not. When God created everything out of nothing, he laid down his rights. And every time we violate his rights, as I've already indicated, we have sinned he built a beautiful creation have you had any chance to see how beautiful creation is you like flowers this girl says she likes flowers do you I do too I think it's magnificent. Did did you did you girls know that every fingerprint in the world is different? Of course you did. That's commonly understood. You don't get a lot of snow here, do you? We come from Chicago. Do you know there are times we have 24 inches of snow that falls in one storm? Do you girls know that every single Snowflake is different from every other snowflake. No, I think it's wonderful that the fingerprints are different, but my word, every snowflake. God made an incredibly beautiful world, and sin messed it up made it rotten. And sin is on the rampage in America right now. And some are predicting that the nation will be destroyed as a democracy within the next ten years. I hope they're wrong. But all sin is against creation. God created an earth that could have been like heaven. I ask you already to think about heaven, and I ask you if you ever had any serious thoughts about being in a place where there was no sin. I find that wonderful. I get excited when I think about a place where there's no sin that's because I've seen so much of it in myself and in others. I'm tired of it. But when you sin, you add to the filth, the degradation, the mess that creation is in. And obviously, number three, when we sin, We sin against this book, God's Word. He tells us plainly what he thinks of sin. He tells us why he hates it. He shows us its influence and effect. And when we sin, we sin against this book. Now, there will be no one that goes from this church to hell who will be able to say, I didn't know there was anything wrong with what I was doing. It's not that today for the first time you heard the truth, you've been hearing it and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. So God, in his kindness and in his grace, has warned us against sin and Told us the only possible way sin can be forgiven. And most of us understand that there are two great things that God wants from every person on earth He wants them to listen to what He says, and He wants them to do exactly what He says when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, as I've already indicated. That's exactly his point. Don't touch this tree! Do you remember a couple chapters later in Genesis, a fellow by the name of Cain appears on the scene? Do you remember the conversation Cain had with God? God said to him, why is your countenance Downcast. And then God said, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is toward you. Is there a cane here? A cane like fellow? Who needs to hear again? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is toward you. You must master it. Know what it can do? Oh, God, help me! No, no, I don't understand what you mean. Tell me. No, no, God spoke to him, and what did he do? He went and told his brother. And I'm assuming from what happened next that his brother said to him, when God speaks, you better listen. And he got angry, and he killed his brother. God wants people who listen and obey. That's what he wants from you, from each of us, without exception. Did it ever occur to you that this is the great theme of the Bible? I wonder if you remember what happened to a young girl. Now we don't know, do you girls know how old Mary was when she was told by an angel she would have a child? It's been estimated, maybe about 15, we don't know for sure, but that's a guess. Now just imagine this, a 15 year old girl has an angel appear to her, and uh, he tells her, you're chosen of God to be the mother of the Savior of the world. She hardly, she, I mean, can you imagine yourself, young lady, having a messenger from God tell you that? It's astonishing. But she believes. And then she rushed. It said at her cousin's house, I don't know for sure if Elizabeth was her cousin or not, but she rushed there. And when she entered, her cousin, if it was a cousin, had an experience utterly incredible. She, too, was pregnant, and the babe leapt in her womb. And both Elizabeth and the baby were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Elizabeth, I wonder, may I ask you, have you ever noticed these words that Elizabeth spoke? How has it happened? that the mother of my Lord has visited me. Do any of you ladies remember reading those words? How has it happened that the mother of my Lord has visited me? Well, you know, Mary had had quite a series of events herself. Not only the angel I've mentioned, but the magi, the kings that came bearing gifts, the shepherds, the men who did in time become her husband, and was struggling with what to do about marrying a pregnant girl. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Don't hesitate to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is of imperishable seed, the Holy Spirit. And when the child's born, name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin." And do you remember that there's a wedding described in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. A wedding in Cana of Galilee. Christ is there. Mary is there. The disciples are all there. They've drunk up all the wine. And Mary learns about this. And she has a little talk with Jesus that didn't seem very satisfactory. And then she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it! And uh, so the servants looked to Christ for direction And he said, here are six. Are you a mathematician? No, sir. sir. (laughs) But but you do know the basics, don't you? What would six times 30 amount to? Try again. That's all right. (laughs) That's 180. There were six water pots there. They contained between 25 and and 30 gallons each. When the servants turned to Christ, he said, fill them with water. And they got busy and they filled the pots. And then he said, now carry it to the leader of the reception. And when he tasted it, he said, man, this is good stuff. How does it happen? Usually they serve the good wine first and then the cheaper stuff later. But now you got the best first. I'd like to ask you a question. Did you ever think about Mary's words? Whatever he says to you, do it. Why did she speak so dogmatically? Why was she so firm and absolute with the servants? Well, I'll tell you why, in case your brain's a little dull. She was absolute because she knew who her son was. And the question I must ask you is, do you know? who Jesus Christ is? And do you understand that when you sin, it's not only against God's sovereignty and against God's purpose in creation, but it's against the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're making a list, that's number three against the body and the blood of Christ. The one whom Mary understood to be both her son and truly the Son of God. Both man and God. The only one in all history who can take away sin. And when you sin, you sin not only against the body and blood of Christ, but you sin against the dire threats. That's number four. The dire threats that the Bible gives us, warning us not to allow ourselves to live in sin, commending to us a life of righteousness, urging us to let Jesus Christ the Savior be both our. Savior, and our Lord. Now, I'm not not normally a brief speaker. And I expect, now I didn't even ask Pastor about this, but I expect you don't normally preach for two hours. But I normally do. But I'm not going to this morning though I should be very happy to do so. What I'm going to do is give you just one more reason why sin is against God. I like a show of hands now. How many of you know the word aspiration? A-S-P-I-R-A-T-I-O-N. Quite a few, but quite a few is either too timid to respond affirmatively or just doesn't know. So let me explain what I'm talking about. Some of you are parents. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you will be parents, by God's grace, in time to come. My wife, Maggie, who's in the back... uh, and I have just two children, a son and a daughter. Now, for a parent, it is right for a parent to have aspirations for their children. And in particular, I have had aspirations for my son, for a very long time. And I'm going to share my aspiration for my son. He lives in Maryville, in Tennessee, and he works within the Varsity Christian Fellowship at Maryville College. But his father has had an aspiration for him for a very long time. For years and years, he had no knowledge of what that aspiration was. But some years back, on my way to Singapore to teach in a seminary for three weeks, I had a stopover in Los Angeles. I called my son, who was living in that area at the time, and I said, to Bob, I've got to be overnight at uh, this hotel. I don't know what your schedule is, but if you're free, I'd love to see you. Oh, Dad, yes, I'll come. So we met in this hotel, and we had one of those kinds of conversations that some of you dads have had with a son. Just a sweet time just ever so precious, just dealing with matters of intense importance. And then I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit, and I said, now, Bob, I think it's time to tell you what my aspiration for you is. My aspiration for you is that you will be A much more godly and spiritually useful man than your father. He sat there as if he were stunned. And finally, He looked up, and he said, Dad, I'll never forget that. And he hasn't. Now, I'm only a man. He's only a man. I've just described an aspiration of an earthly father for an earthly son. But I wonder if any of you, or if all of you, know that your father in heaven has aspirations for you, aspirations that are better, aspirations that are greater than any earthly father could have for an earthly son. And do you understand that when you sin, you sin against God's aspirations for you. Now just imagine the immensity of this. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of Of heaven and earth, the one and only sovereign God of the entire universe and of the universes, has an aspiration for you. For you personally, he knows you. By name, he knows you inside out. There's not one thing in your life he does not know and understand. And when you sin, it's against his aspirations for you. Is that what you really want? Do you want to throw your life away by violating the aspirations of the God who made you and loved you with such everlasting love that he let his only begotten son die in your place? And you see, when David wrote Psalm 51. He had come to this realization. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can, as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.